We're firmly now in the green season, the longest season, the, the, the Sundays after Pentecost, and I always speak about them being about discipleship, the nature of Christian discipleship, the cost of Christian discipleship, and the ways and the means of being a disciple amidst all the challenges and the opportunities we face uh, in every age. In the bulletin, I've reproduced again Vicki Black's comment about the season after Pentecost, and she adds that this season is about our relationship with God, our relationship with Jesus Christ and with one another through our prayers, the sacraments and life in the body of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and the church and its mission. So that's, this season gives the preacher a fair amount of latitude. There's a lot of ground that can be covered over 26 weeks. I believe that uh, at least two of the readings, the reading from, from uh, Genesis, Abraham and Isaac, and the reading from the Gospel, have something to do with uh, ways of thinking about what we mean when we use the word obedience. What is Christian obedience? This is a non-starter for many people these days. We live in a culture driven by uh, the uh, individual person's success being the highest value. So it's very difficult to think about submitting to anything when you wish to become the center of the universe. I saw a t-shirt in a New Yorker cartoon yesterday when I was looking at my issue of the New Yorker. And on the t-shirt the guy was wearing, it said, I'm with me. <laughs> so that'll kind of give you the picture. Obedience comes from a Latin word, obudiri, which means to listen. So listening carefully, maybe for the still small voice that we know is not our own, is an important thing to do. I will say that I know people, and I'm sure you do too, and even each of us maybe in some ways are unwilling uh, to be obedient to undertaking certain kinds of hair-raising practices if they will make us more popular, thinner, healthier, or hooked up with powerful and influential people. We will do a lot of things and engage in not a little self-denial if we think that that's what is necessary to be successful. So speaking about obedience is not something that is completely outside our understanding. G.K. Chesterton, the great Christian writer of the 20th century, or one of them, uh, said, you know, when people stop believing in God, they don't stop believing. They'll believe anything. And they do. You just have to have casual conversations with people to discover that, you know, there are certain kinds of uh, beliefs out there that uh, beggar the imagination. So I thought I'd talk about obedience and how people come to obedience and how we might understand what it means uh, in Christian terms and start 
with the story of Abraham and Isaac and tell you some historical things, some archaeological things, and draw some conclusions, at least I'm going to, that are, that are from me and nowhere else. So you'll know that uh, from the beginning. In the story, Abraham takes his son Isaac to sacrifice him. And more than once in the story, at least three times, God speaks to Abraham, or an angel of God speaks to Abraham, and Abraham's response is always, here I am. So I think for the Christian person, uh, the willingness to respond uh, to that voice is an important point that is being brought home by the reading. But you need to know some things about the archaeology and the history of this. It was the Abraham was a Canaanite. Canaan was a was a region in the in the ancient Near East. He came from Canaan to go to the place that God direct obediently, faithfully following God. Leave your home country and go to where I'm telling you to go. He has a son, Isaac. It's his only son with his wife, Sarah. He has other children, but none with Sarah except Isaac. In ancient Canaanite religion at the time of Abraham, it was customary and expected that you would sacrifice your firstborn son. Human sacrifice. So you might say, well, how do they know that? Because we have archaeological sites where we have dug up the bones of nine-year-old little boys or the ashes of nine-year-old little boys. So we know that the practice was being done and was widespread and expected. So Abraham is being apparently obedient to God. And he takes Isaac with him to go on the mountain. Think of the scene, they're actually walking together. And Isaac has the sticks on his back for the pyre, for the sacrifice. And he asks his father, where's the, the ram that we're going to sacrifice? And he said, well, God will provide. And he takes him to the place and he puts the sticks down and makes the pyre. And then he ties up Isaac. He binds him and places him on the pyre and he's going to now kill him. He takes out his knife. And the voice says to Abraham, I know that you are obedient to me. I know that you are faithful to me. You don't have to do this. And so they turn and they see a ram with his horns caught in the thicket. And they take that ram and they sacrifice the ram. And then they go. Now here's David Brewer on this. I think it would be wonderful 
to have been a fly on the wall or on the tree or whatever you want to say when Abraham showed up in the camp with Isaac. So he comes into the clearing and hears all the patriarchs and the matriarchs and the people there and the tents and Abraham shows up with Isaac. Well, Abraham, I see you have Isaac. Yes. Well, why didn't you sacrifice him? We have all had to sacrifice our firstborn sons. God told me that I don't have to do that. Listen, Abraham, we've all had to do it. If you don't do this, the crops will not come up, the lambs will drop. If we're in any kind of territorial dispute with another tribe or group, it's not going to be pretty. We are going to be marching from one horror to the next unless you do this. It is impossible for me to understand why the God we believe in would require this of anybody. And I'm not going to do it. Now here's the history and the archaeology. Around the time of Abraham in the B.C.s, we see that this practice stopped. No more killing little boys. It ended. So just maybe being obedient to the still small voice that you know is not your own can have a transformative effect on the manners, morals, and customs of the people with whom you come in contact. And maybe that's how God's revelatory work works through our manners, morals, and customs through a deepening of our consciousness of the presence and the power of God, to our deepening consciousness in the fact that we are cooperators with the divine initiative in the cosmos and that we have a role to play, and we should take that seriously, not in an egotistical fashion, or for that matter, a kind of a lone ranger fashion, but that in some way we're part of God's plan for the cosmos, and God's transforming work is present to us always to move and to shift society in a better direction. You see, it's entirely possible that the Canaanite people misunderstood the God they worshipped. It wouldn't have been the first time or the last. So we know that God's Influence changes the way the world is. This is what it's about. So the right kind of obedience may help with regard to shifting things off dead center. 
in some way. In the reading from Matthew's Gospel, we have a, one of the places in the Bible, in the, in the New Testament, where a certain principle is being asserted that is, that is part of the ancient Near East. And there's some situation on the ground issues with regard to Matthew's circumstances that are important to understand this. But the first thing I want to say is this. There's another famous passage in, in the New Testament about, you've heard, when, when were you sick and we visited you? When were you naked and we clothed you? When were you thirsty and we gave you drink? When were you hungry and we fed you? For as much as you have done this to the least of these, my children, you have done it to me. That text preachers often use to call all of us to our social responsibilities. God forbid that we should forget that. But at the same time, that story or that passage and this passage is about something in the ancient Near East called the Shaliach principle, which means if you reject the messenger, you reject the sender of the message. So Jesus is saying to, to the disciples who have been sent out on missionary journeys or to people who are the receivers of missionaries, evangelists, prophets, that they should receive them with some species of generosity and openness, the willing to listen and to act on it. And he says that if you do that, you will receive your... If you receive them, you receive me. Matthew was in all probability a former rabbi who was the head of a Jewish Christian congregation. You know, Christianity started out as a sect of Judaism. And the predominant Christian expression in Jerusalem was Jewish Christian. In 70 AD, the Roman army came into Jerusalem and burned it down and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And all of the people in Jerusalem, or many of them, ran away. And it brought to an end the hegemony of Jewish Christianity. At the same time that this was occurring, these Jewish Christian synagogues were beginning to get more and more Gentile converts to the belief in Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior. And the tensions that had occurred were the result of the fact that there was a debate and a dispute among the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians with regard to what were the Gentile Christians' responsibilities with regard to practicing and continue to practice the Jewish law. Did all males need to be circumcised? 
Did they need to keep the Sabbath? Did they need to observe the dietary laws? And it became clear that many of the Gentiles had absolutely no knowledge of these things. So the question is, are you going to make them do it or not? And what are we going to do now about their increasing influence in our congregations? Matthew was the leader or one of them of his congregation that was now 80% Gentile. So how do we coexist? Matthew applies this saying, these sayings of the Savior to his situation on the ground where they are actually now being visited in all probability from, by Gentile evangelists and by those who are suggesting that we might need to have uh, a little different approach to how we're going to move forward here. Remember, Paul had already been writing prior to this and was killed by then, by the writing of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel was written in about 85 AD. Paul was killed in 62, nearly a generation out. So how do we deal with this and the knowledge that Paul says, you know what, it's not all of these laws and everything that are going to keep us in. It's our faith in Jesus Christ and the power that has with regard to transforming our lives. Because in him, in his words and in his works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. And more to the point, he has given us tools that we can use. All we need to do is listen and act on it. And so Matthew was coming to the conclusion that these words have uh, concrete use in the pastoral situation on the ground for him that we need to receive one another with some degree of generosity and openness and understand the reciprocal nature of the way people understand Christianity. Jewish Christianity is now going to continue for a long time. In fact, there's some evidence that it's around even in the fourth century. And Gentile Christianity is going to keep going too. And we're going to have now this kind of syncretism, if you will, the coming together of these two ways of seeing the world and understanding the Christian mystery. So if we're to be obedient to God's plan for the cosmos, we have to be open to that kind of a future. Many types of Christianity say, you know, you need to hold to the truth. The truth is the thing you need to hold to. Nobody can know the whole truth. I hope each one of you wishes to seek the truth. That is our Christian responsibility. And this is a gospel about that and how we do it. So this week, think about your own manners, morals, and customs. 
And have you ever felt that God in some way, maybe the still small voice that comes that you know is not your own, has had a transformative effect on how you relate to other people, on your habits, on your ways of thinking and relating and being? See if you have an opportunity to practice some hospitality with regard to people with divergent opinions. If you do that, you'll be faithful to what uh, is suggested to us in the gospel for today. Amen.